And guess who is back? After three months of the airwaves, we are back with more content, more fun, and more exciting animals and zoology themes. So, welcome to the Biome Podcast. My name is Graham, and I will be your host for the next season. The last three months have been full of fun, work, and planning to make this the best season yet. Although there has only been one um, season so far, still, the sentiment stands. Some highlights that we are we have been working on are the fact that we have opened up a membership section where you can listen as we record the latest podcast episode, get involved, and ask questions live, and who knows what else. Members are also invited to exclusive Q&As with experts in their field. There will be giveaways, and we are working on bringing new and exciting stuff as well. The majority of the subscription fees will be sent to the charities that we support. The current one is Saving the Survivors Rhino Charity that helps to work or that works to rehabilitate rhinos that have been mutilated for their horns. We are also looking at working with other charities too though, so there will be more down the line. We also implemented a guest article section on the site, a place to read interesting articles from the world of zoology and ecology. We welcome anyone to contact the team about possibly writing a guest article. They can spark great discussions and the team will consider anything from opinion pieces to analyses of journal articles, even just articles about how you're helping the environment in some way or retelling of that one time you got that fantastic photo of that bird or birds and everything you had to go through to get it. Basically anything you want to consider that is zoology related or biology related. Speaking of articles, we have also redone the field notes section. It will now be a companion to the podcast and contain extra content and information that might not fit into the podcast if we are trying to still keep it in bite-sized chunks. We have also released a birdwatcher's log. It is a printable page that you can um, use to keep track of all the birds that you see throughout the year. There is even a spot on the page to stick or draw a picture of the bird if you're like me and you have to photograph everything head on over to the site and sign up for the email newsletter for that one you'll get an email about once a month with project and community news um, a recap of the last month and if there's anything special happening in the coming month so you seriously don't want to miss that with that being said though let's take a dive into our first animal spotlight of the season Welcome to the first animal spotlight of the season. This is the section of the podcast where we talk about the ins and outs of a particular species, or in the odd occurrence, a particular type of animal. In this spotlight, we'll be looking into my favorite animal, and I really don't say that lightly. It has been my favorite animal for as long as I can remember. Axononyx jabatus, also known as the cheetah. First, let's start with some basic facts about these creatures. They're native to Africa and parts of Asia. They are the fastest land animal in the world, capable of reaching speeds of up to 128 kilometers per hour, or about 80 miles per hour. While they are the fastest land animal, they cannot sustain the speed for very long. 
usually lasting little more than a minute and covering a distance of about 200 meters to half a kilometer, which is about 0.12 miles to about 0.3 miles. So it's a relatively short run. Their stride length while running at top speed is about seven meters or about 21 feet. For an animal that has a maximum length of about one and a half meters or about five feet long, that's an incredible stride length. It's around four times the body length of the animal. Cheetahs are obviously built for speed. Everything about them is highly adapted for the niche that they fill amongst African carnivores. They are considered big cats, yet they are surprisingly delicate. Generally, they reach under a meter at the shoulder or about 37 inches at the shoulder. This is only slightly larger than a greyhound dog, which is considered a medium-sized dog. Cheetahs have extremely long, slender legs, built more for running than climbing or fighting like lions and leopards. Although, surprisingly, cheetahs are quite accomplished climbers, just not as accomplished as the leopard. Um, they are sexually dimorphic, with adults weighing between 21 and 72 kilograms, or 46 and 160 pounds. Generally, the males are larger than the females. Um, other adaptations that they have include smaller canine teeth. This means that they're able to have large nostrils, which allows them to pull in greater volume of oxygen relative to size. This oxygen, when paired with um, the larger than normal lungs and a larger than normal heart, uh, means that they are able to move that oxygen to the muscles quicker, as well as pull carbon dioxide from the muscles more efficiently. Now, some background information. When a muscle works without enough oxygen, the carbon dioxide builds up and the muscle produces lactic acid, or causes lactic acid to form. While some studies suggest that lactic acid, also known as lactate, can sometimes be used as a fuel for the muscle, aerobic respiration, which means the muscle is provided with enough oxygen, produces a lot more of the muscle energy source known as adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, than anaerobic. As ATP reserves are reduced, muscle function starts to decline. Therefore, it is the, in the cheetah's best interest to make sure that the muscles get as much oxygen as possible. During a typical chase, the cheetah's respiratory rate will increase from about 60 breaths per minute to about 150 breaths per minute. Even still, some of the um, some, once they've brought down their prey, they have been known to sit with the carcass catching their breath from anywhere between five minutes to an hour. Another reason for the excessive panting is that a cheetah retains about 90% of the temperature generated during the chase, and their body temperature can rise to about 41 degrees Celsius or about 106 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, in terms of social behavior, cheetahs are generally solitary animals. Sometimes males will live in coalitions with other males, and females may have some older cubs that haven't left yet, but generally they are solitary. Solitary cheetahs will take small to medium-sized prey, and the prey differs depending on the habitat. Generally speaking, their prey will weigh between 20 and 60 kilograms, or about 44 to 132 pounds. There are no records of a cheetah ever killing a human though, despite the fact that they are carnivores. There are reports of cheetahs eating melons though. The, in the Kalahari Desert, the melons hold a lot of water, and which is why the cheetahs um, 
have been known to eat them. Male coalitions and females with older cubs have been known to take larger prey, but still nothing massive. To communicate, unlike larger cats, cheetahs cannot roar. Instead, they are one of the largest cats that are able to purr. To purr, a cat vibrates the larynx, which produces or which resonates the high hyoid bone. Larger felines, like lions and tigers, have a piece of cartilage that runs from the hyoid bone to the skull. This cartilage prevents the larger cats from purring, but does allow them to roar. Other noises that cheetahs make are loud chirping, and that they use to communicate with their young. There are a variety, or rather they are found in a variety of ecosystems. It seems that the best habitats are open areas with some cover like bushes. Cheetahs need to be able to run down their prey, obviously. It is actually how the cheetah immobilizes its prey. The cheetah needs the prey to run from to run from it and it will then tire the prey out before ankle tapping the animal and that is where the cheetah will swat the hind legs the animal stumbles and falls the prey will then be on the ground exhausted and sometimes will have or could have broken bones from the tumble this then allows the cheetah to rush up to the prey and either clamp its mouth over the snout of the prey um, suffocating it or bite down on the prey's throat which also suffocates it if you're wondering why the prey doesn't get up and run if there are no broken bones after taking a tumble the cheetah can decelerate from over 90 kilometers per hour to or 56 miles per hour to just under 20 kilometers per hour or about 12 miles per hour in just three strides that is a phenomenal deceleration that kind of deceleration allows the cheetah to be on the prey item incredibly quickly so basically when the animal falls it stumbles it gets stunned and it doesn't have enough time to get up and start running again now in southern africa cheetahs live in savannas where in north africa they are found in mountain ranges and valleys and in iran they spend most of their time in hilly terrain at elevations up to about 3,000 meters or close to 10,000 feet the rainfall at these heights are usually greater, which helps support the antelopes, which the cheetah feeds on. Now let's touch on their conservation status. In 2017, cheetahs occupied around 9% of their original range in Africa, and mostly in unprotected areas. Around that time, the global cheetah population was just 7,100 individuals in the wild and still dropping. They are listed as vulnerable currently, although certain subspecies are listed as um, very threatened. For example, there's only a few hundred individuals in North Africa and there are um, about a hundred individuals in Iran. Now, the southern um, subspecies seems to be doing all right, although it is still dropping. But that's where most of the 7,100 individuals come from. There is some good news, however, and that is in September, they were reintroduced back into India after being extinct in the country for about 70 years. Part of the reason that cheetahs are suffering, apart from being hunted as vermin since they will feed on livestock, like sheep, for example, is that they are, there is unbelievably little genetic variability. It is 
believed that this was caused by two genetic bottlenecks, one about 100,000 years ago and the other about 12,000 years ago. Their genetic variability is so low that it is actually lower than um, the genetic variability of highly inbred cats and dogs. Due to this incredibly low genetic variability, they have high juvenile mortality and a high susceptibility to diseases and infections. For example, in 1983, a cheetah breeding center in Oregon suffered a loss of about 60% of their cheetahs due to a feline virus, which was way higher than the mortality rate of the virus in any other feline um, population. I think we should call it there for this particular animal spotlight though. There are still a few things I want to talk about with regards to the cheetah, like what is a king cheetah and what are certain differences that they exhibit from other typical felines. So I'll put those in the field notes and make sure that you read the field notes on thebiomepodcast.com and learn a bit more about these incredible creatures. And welcome to the technical section of the Biome Podcast. In this section, we will be looking at some concept or idea in the zoology field. Today, I want to talk to you about the incredible speeds that some animals are capable of reaching, from the lightning-fast cheetahs of the African savanna to the powerful dives of the peregrine falcon. The animal kingdom is filled with incredible examples of speed and agility. But what about these? What is it about these animals that allows them to move so quickly? How have they evolved to become such efficient movers? First, let's take a look at the cheetah, perhaps the most well-known animal for its speed, and the one that we've just covered. Cheetahs are able to reach speeds of a little over 120 kilometers per hour, or about 75 miles per hour, making them the fastest land animal on Earth. So, as a bit of a recap, what makes them so fast? Well, for starters, cheetahs have incredibly powerful muscles and a flexible spine that allows them to make sharp turns and sudden movements. They also have long legs and a slender build, which helps them maintain their speed. They have other adaptations, like a large nasal cavity that allows them to take in more oxygen when combined with the larger lungs and the larger heart to pump the blood. Um, they are set up well to make the most of their light build and their long slender legs. But perhaps the most important factor in a cheetah's speed is its stride. Cheetahs are able to take longer strides than most other animals, allowing them to cover more ground per stride. Running at full tilt, a cheetah is able to have a stride length of up to four times the length of their body. That's seven meters or 23 feet. That is the length of a killer whale or the length of about two and a half elephants. Another feature is that their nails are only semi-retractable, so there's no worry about them retracting their claws in the middle of a run and losing traction. But the cheetah isn't the only animal that's capable of impressive speeds. If we look at airspeed, for example, the fastest animal by a country mile is a peregrine falcon. These races of the natural world are actually one of the fastest naturally occurring living creatures that we know of. That means that we're not counting anything in a car or on a plane or on a rocket. The peregrine falcon is able to reach speeds of around 390 kilometers per hour, or about 240 miles per hour. 
These birds reach these speeds while hunting, as they are bird hunters. The peregrine falcon will fly high over flocks of prey, and when they spot a suitable meal, they'll bring their wings in close and enter a dive. It is during that dive that the falcon will hit the incredible speeds. Being able to use gravity is obviously a huge advantage over species that live close to the land, or close to the ground rather. It is often the force that the falcon collides with its prey that instantly kills the prey. Now, when entering a dive, the peregrine falcon assumes a position called the cupped wing. Basically, the wings are curved slightly the further from the body they are. This forces air close to the body, between the body and the wing in fact, and this forces the air through a smaller area and speeds it up, which in turn obviously speeds up the bird. An added advantage is that the birds have incredible eyesight, which means that they are able to spot their prey from very high vantage points. They never lose sight of their prey from when it's spotted all through the dive and up until impact. In terms of water though, that is a very different kettle of fish. The medium itself is a lot thicker to force your way through, and unlike the peregrine falcon that reaches its top speed by a controlled dive, basically using gravity and wing shape, the cheetah and the sailfish have to propel themselves to their top speed using muscle power. So let's take a look at the sailfish. The sailfish is the world's fastest fish. It can swim at speeds of about 108 kilometers per hour or a little over 67 miles per hour. That's just shy of the top speed of a cheetah. Now, what kind of adaptations do they have to allow for this incredible speed? Well, first thing to note is that like the cheetah, the speed isn't able to be maintained for long periods of time. Secondly, when moving through such a viscous fluid like water, the amount of drag becomes a lot more important. Scientists measure the amount of drag acting on an organism by calculating the drag coefficient. There are a lot of variables that affect this number from size, weight, friction with the surface area, and actually a bunch of others. The sailfish has a large body, but the body is shaped like a flattened torpedo. It's flattened on its side rather than on the top and bottom, which definitely helps when, you're, uh, when your tail moves from side to side as it swims, as opposed to a whale which moves from up and down. Generally speaking though, an adult sailfish will be between 2 and 3.5 and meters long, or about 6 to 11 feet long, and have a drag coefficient of 0 .07, sorry, 0.0075. This is comparable to a small trout which has the body size of barely 30 centimeters or a foot. So the sailfish actually has a drag coefficient of an animal between 6 and 12 times smaller than it. Some of the adaptations that allow for such low drag coefficients are the fact that the sailfish's tails are forked. They almost look like two flat spines pointing back slightly above the tail, um, above and below the tail. The tail's shape is very similar to other speedsters in the ocean, like tunas for example. The reason why these fish have this particular tail design is that the lack of substantial fluke cuts down on the drag. If their flukes, which is the portion above and below the fork of the tail, had any more surface area, there would be a lot more friction as the water rushed past them. 
Another adaptation is that the sailfish has the ability to lower its dorsal fin flat against its body. It has one of the largest dorsal fins relative to size, and if left standing, it would cause significant drag, which, as it happens to be, is one of its main purposes. The dorsal fin is used to help stabilize the fish when it gets close to the prey, but it'll also help the fish slow down very quickly, if needed at least, or at very least it'll have extreme control over its precise speed because it can raise it and lower it when needed. Another adaptation that seemed to help lower the drag coefficient is the fact that sailfish have a high blood pressure and highly vascularized muscles. This means that they have a lot of blood flowing to their muscles. And again, like the cheetah that we spoke about in the last section, this allows the muscles to maintain their performance for longer. A lot of fish also have a system called countercurrent flow in their gills. This means that the blood flows in the opposite direction to the water within the gills, and therefore the blood is able to pull out more oxygen from the water. It's a fascinating system, so I may put it in a field note or just do a whole podcast section on it because it is an extremely um, efficient way of pulling oxygen out of water. One thing of note is that the three fastest animals in their various environments are all predators. However, I don't believe any of them are on the top of their food chain. But they are all extremely or highly adapted to handle their own specific prey. Well, I think we will end this episode there. If you want more wildlife content, be sure to check out our website at thebiomepodcast.com and consider becoming a member. The majority of all the profits go towards Saving the Survivors Rhino Rescue. Feel free to check them out at savingthesurvivors.org. There will be a lot more content and community of like-minded zoology enthusiasts on there as well, as well as giveaways, photo contests, or photos and contests, possibly even both together combined, and experts, uh, expert QAs. We uh, also be sure to sign up for our newsletter as we will get a, or as you will get a free copy of our bird watchers log, which is a printable form to log all your bird sightings and easy to put in a binder. I use it myself personally and it is great. There is even a place to sketch or attach a picture um, depending on your preference. Again, newsletters go out about once a month and contain highlights and surprises. Also, if you or anyone you know enjoys writing, be sure to consider writing a post for the guest articles section. We may get you to be on the podcast even, so have a look at the site and read the tips on writing a compelling article as well as how to get in touch with our editors. A lot of new things this season, so be sure to stick around and follow us on social media at biome.media. And don't forget, we love hearing from you, so please keep in touch. For now, though, we will be back in two weeks with episode two. If you want to hear the podcast before it is released to the public, sign up for that membership and you can uh, comment and listen in while it is recorded. Until next time, though, remember to always ask questions. Thank you.